from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Ian Kluge on September 21st, 2015. Ian describes his growing up as a precocious kid who read the World Book Encyclopedia when he was young. Ian describes in the interview that his parents were devout Marxists, and when he was 12, he disavowed his parents' ideology and pursued a spiritual direction. Ian has written many articles which you can find on a website called Lights of Irfan, and he has written book reviews which you can find on another website called Common Ground. I provide links to both websites on the podcast website. Ian is a philosopher by nature, and he explains in the interview the importance of understanding philosophical fundamentals when reading religious scripture, including the Baha'i sacred literature. He also outlines his observation on the commonality between Catholicism and the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Ian where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born into a a family that was of mixed German and Jewish heritage in Europe right after the war, 1948, actually three years after the war. And we came to Canada in 1954. It was a fairly normal childhood, but the thing that really set me up for life was the fact that my parents, my father in particular, insisted on having dinner table conversations that were very intellectual. All the subjects that other people forbade, religion, politics, philosophy, he was very heavy on philosophy, you know, and all the controversial topics of the time in the 50s were, were openly and passionately and rabidly de- debated. What makes this interesting, and this comes to a surprise ending, my father was a pretty hardcore Marxist-Leninist. Hmm. So we didn't grow up with religion. We grew up with Marxist-Leninism. <laughs> so I sort of imbibed suddenly my Marx with my mother's milk, so to speak. Right. This has served me over the years very well, and as I said, this leads to a surprise ending, because it equipped me to deal with today's modern young Marxists or some of the older Marxists or quasi-Marxists whom I meet, because I grew up with reading this stuff and debating it, and I, I know it fairly well, and probably know some little nooks and corners that a lot of them don't know. And so that, of course, helps me to look at, de-explain things like Marx's theory of religion and what its problems are, the problems of Marxism in general. I, st- I, start, I was a family rebel, so I pretty much quit Marxism when I was 12 or 13, not because I had an in-depth understanding of the, of the economic intricacies of Marxist theory, but I'd read enough to conclude that this theory of human beings was completely false. This is not how people were. They didn't work like this. So 
So, and I said that to my father. And of course, this led to years of conflict and conversation between us. But I said it, it just doesn't work for that reason. And no wonder it has to be carried out at the point of a gun, because you can't go against human nature. I was, I guess, a naturally religious child. I can never remember not having the feeling that there was something behind the material, physical reality that I could see and that was incredibly real and in some ways more real than anything that I could actually see. And I knew it, it would be very bad. It would be a terrible mistake if I betrayed that or denied it. So where that came from, I have a, I don't know, I have a psychologist friend who's got about 60 years of practice in, and he, he can't figure it out either where this came from. It was just always there. Surprised, by the way, is that many years after I became a Baha'i, my father renounced Marxism and became a Baha'i himself. And he actually saw that the things that were wrong with it and for the last 13 years, he was 73 when he became a Baha'i, which is a very old age for a person to change their mind on something that fundamental. So, Ian, I have a question for you. How did your religious awakening at 12 years old manifest itself? I mean, did you start reading religious scripture? Did you start doing a religious practice? Did you start attending a church? How did it manifest itself? I started, you know, looking at Christianity because that was what was available to me, but I was never satisfied with any one religion. This played a major role later in life because I went, where else would you go if you're rebelling against the Marxist-Leninist father than a Catholic university, right? <laughs> uh, where the same question arose, why couldn't you become a Catholic? And I had Catholic girlfriends, of course, who had the same question, and the same, que- the same question you asked. I always felt that I could not accept any religion, that any single religion that did not recognize the other religions or the mythological traditions. I was always fascinated by mythology. I, I was kind of a precocious kid. You know, I, I read the encyclopedia, the World Book Encyclopedia from A through Z when I was pretty young. So I know this sounds souped up or hopped up, but it's just the way it was. So what was your spiritual travel from the point of being awakened when you were 12, checking out religions in high school, to you becoming a Baha'i? What, what's that story? Well, of course, I mean, I, I, I learned a lot about Marxist-Leninism. I learned a lot about Christianity, and I went through... Buddhism. Oh, in, in, in Catholicism, I was very attracted to Teilhard de Chardin, and for a long time was a t- member of the International Teilhard de Chardin Society. I spent many years studying Buddhism, and I have a number of articles published on Buddhism and the Baha'i Faith. Actually, they're quite lengthy articles, and one is called Buddhism and the Baha'i Faith, and the other one is called Nothingness and the Baha'i Faith, which compares different concepts of nothingness in Buddhism and in the writings. And then when I was 32, or yeah, 32, I guess, I was teaching. I had taught at university for a while, and but then there was a major recession here in the early 1970s, and 
you know, rather than drive a taxi or do anything else, I decided to be, try school teaching and found out I had this gift for getting along with teens. I have many, many decades of teaching and no horror stories, everything, just, just nothing. I, and I approached everything philosophically with the kids, and I'll, I'll speak more about that later. And one of my colleagues asked me, I was writing something, and one of my colleagues, who was a Baha'i, asked me what I was writing. I said, oh, I'm finishing you know, part of my dissertation here on the evolution of consciousness and, and an American writer named Conrad Aiken. And he said, well, I've got you a book. I can get you a book that you'd be interested in. And he brought me the old Baha'i world faith that has a selection from Abdul Baha and Baha'u'llah. And I took that home, and on the weekend, I started reading, and I could not stop reading. I read for about 36 hours, or, yeah, roughly about 36 hours straight. And when I had finished, I just had this sense around me that somebody had turned the lights on in the room. Nothing had changed. A chair was still a chair, and, you know, the old mountain was still a mountain, and a table was still a table. But somehow the light had been turned on and I could start to understand things. And I, I have never looked back. Of course, I've always approached the Baha'i writings and all religions from a philosophical perspective, because that's my thing, so to speak. So that's how I became a Baha'i. But I looked at all the other religions, and particularly Buddhism, and I have, a, have had and still have to some extent a fairly deep interest in Catholicism, because there are some points where, where Catholic teachings and Baha'i teachings and philosophy overlap. So that's the odyssey, so to speak. So let me ask you this, Ian. What was it, when reading Baha'u'llah's and Abdu'l-Baha's writings, uh, Baha'u'llah being the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith and Abdu'l-Baha being his son and head of the faith after Baha'u'llah passed, what was it that turn the lights on for you when you read those writings? Just the feeling that I had encountered truth. I didn't understand it all. Truth is not just an intellectual thing, for, at least it isn't for me. Uh, of course I didn't understand it all. I still don't understand it all. That I had encountered truth, the, the certainty that if I continue to explore this route, that a lot of things that were not clear or did not make sense or where other explanations fell short, a lot of these things would become clear. And that was an absolute certainty. And that, so it was those two emotions of uh, I have encountered truth and I have found certainty here. And I thought this was so important that I actually waited six months or so before becoming a Baha'i because my wife, who is Finnish and came from a very strong Finnish Lutheran background, took a few months to decide that this is what she wanted too. But I thought it was so important we had to do this together. After 42 years, we're still together. So I understand your father eventually became a Baha'i, but when you did become a Baha'i so many years ago, what were your parents' reactions to you becoming a Baha'i? My father, of course, was, ah, yeah, you got sucked in. He was a man with a gift for sarcasm. 
he had been a, a lawyer, but he had also studied philosophy of law, which is something people here in North America didn't, but his law degree was from Germany. And my mother fluctuated between being uh, a militant atheist like my father to an agnostic. It depended on kind of the day of the week and, and how she felt at the time. But she just said, well, if it makes you happy, okay, so what? But it was basically an indifference. You haven't found anything special. That was my mother's attitude, and my father was, well, I guess you got sucked in. So did your mother ever move away from atheism, agnosticism like your father? No, no. But my my mother, because of the experiences in the war, uh, was not always in her best frame of mind, shall we say. But it was a benevolent kind of, it, was, it wasn't a malevolent kind of dislike or surprise. Mm-hmm. Or, whereas my father was pretty militant. I mean, I haven't seen anything that the so-called new atheists today have written that I hadn't heard by the time of 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing, nothing, nothing's new. In fact, I've written a number and published a number of papers on the philosophical problems inherent in the atheist position, including, a, and i got to say this because it's going to go up on the internet on my new webpage pretty soon, a 42-page list of logical errors in Dawkins and Harris, because these are not differences of opinion. These are logical errors where a logic teacher can say, here's the argument, what's wrong with it? Never mind the content, what's wrong with the argument? So what was the transition for your father to going from being an uh, atheist and a Marxist to becoming a Baha'i? My mother's death. My mother was not in good physical or mental shape, and she died very early. If there's anything that can be said of those two, is that they were in love, and my father worshipped the ground she walked on. It was as if somebody had wiped the blackboard clean for him. Everything he had believed, done, etc., etc., none of that seemed to matter anymore. And so we used to visit him. I used to leave a Baha'i prayer book around, and on one of our visits to him, I noticed that the Baha'i prayer book, which I had you know, accidentally conspicuously left on the table, was gone. And I asked him, say, Dad, did you see my prayer book? I'm not quite sure where. I thought I put it there. And he said, do you mind if I have a look at it? At that moment, I knew that um, something was moving. And, of course, I believe in prayer, and so I prayed a lot for that. And on one of our other visits, he said to me, uh, what would you do if I became a Baha'i? Well, shock of shocks. And I said I used an Eastern European expression because we, we spoke in German most of the time. I would dance barefoot in the snow, which means, you know, I would be so overjoyed I wouldn't care that it was snowing and my feet were cold, etc., etc., etc. And then several months later, I get a phone call very early in the morning before I'm setting out for school, and he said, Start dancing. And my wife actually has a picture of me dancing barefoot in about two feet of snow up north in British Columbia. (laughs) And after that, he became a very active Baha'i in his community. Did classes and children's classes and all that kind of stuff. I mean, as much as he could, he was injured and 
wasn't well himself, but he, he did do what he could. Ian, you mentioned a number of times that you've written papers on this subject and that subject. Where could someone go to see those papers? A lot of them can be found on a web page that you just type in on on whatever browser you use, Google or, or Explorer or whatever, the name Lights of Urfan, which is a journal, and then in quotation marks, Lights of Urfan, and then articles. And it's got a list of about two or 300 articles, and I've got about 20, 22 of them. And they're on all kinds of subjects. It's not 100% up to date, but it's pretty close. How do they find yours? They're listed by title, but the author's name is prominently displayed. Okay. So they can just use their search function, you know, on, on there and go kluge, it'll check out whatever articles they have. And if I can say something is that my email address should be attached to those, and I always answer my email. So if somebody has a question or a comment or anything like that that they'd like to make, positive or negative, I'm up for it. Please do not hesitate to do so. And I, I've been involved in some interesting discussions with people who, who want to deal with subjects like atheism or Buddhism or uh, existentialism and the Baha'i faith. Uh, I've written some of those. Uh, Reason and the Baha'i faith, that's two large papers on that. And some of these are actually published in France as short books. Hmm. They've been translated into French. Now, you also mentioned that as a teacher, you teach the kids philosophically, and you found that to be successful. Can you sort of explain to us what you mean by that? Yes, and I'll start from a Baha'i point of view. One of the first, if not the first, teaching of Baha'u'llah, as Abdu'l Baha says it, is, and Baha'u'llah, of course, is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, which we call a manifestation, is the independent investigation of truth. Everybody has an obligation to whatever degree they can to find the truth for themselves on important issues, of course. I mean, nobody's going to try to prove that the Earth goes around the sun by themselves. I've, I took an astronomy class many, many years ago, and that was our first assignment, and all of us failed miserably. It's harder than we think. Philosophically, I'm a follower of a, an American Jewish philosopher named Mortimer Adler, and he had something called a statement that said, philosophy is everybody's business. And I adapted that to everybody is a natural-born philosopher. And then I added everybody, especially teens, are natural-born philosophers. And so I compiled what I call the great questions, which could be adapted from grade 8 on up to grade 12 in complexity, etc., etc., and started to study literature and history, which are the two of the subjects I taught a lot of in light of these questions, and found exactly what, what I, I had thought. Kids, young people, are natural-born philosophers. They want to ask these questions. They don't necessarily want you to give them the answer. It's, it wasn't a question-and-answer session. It was an exploration exercise. We started 
studied stories and how people were trying to answer different kinds of questions about ethics or the, 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 the value of life, not the meaning of life, but the value of life, the value of an animal life, human life, etc. And the kids just got into that. And a very often it was the kids who were otherwise in a lot of other classes, reluctant learners and sometimes outright troublemakers. They had just not been stimulated the right way, and I provided an atmosphere, a classroom where those kids could ask and answer those questions. Any question, I said, any question is allowed. Any question, or none. They played a trick on me once with that. I'll, I'll tell it later because it's a funny little story. And the only rule I had was if you can agree with or disagree with somebody, that's not a problem. But the moment you get ad hominem, the moment you call them a name or just say that's stupid, that's it. I said, I'll come down on you like a piano from the 40th floor. That created a safe atmosphere. And I used that not only in classes at school, but I used it in the young people's Baha'i classes I taught for a while. You know, kids were said they... They never discussed the Baha'i faith much or religion much because they didn't know what to say when, when their atheist friends started. And so I said, well, that's easy to fix. I will teach you some of the proofs of God, and I will teach them to you in a, in a, in a form that is not as easy to refute as some people think. The change in those kids was dramatic. Suddenly, they felt more confident in their faith. You know, and the Baha'i writings can benefit from philosophy, any religion, but the Baha'i faith is my particular interest, because if you study the writings from a philosophical point of view, and there are many, many, many highly philosophical passages in the writings, proofs for the existence of the soul, proofs for God, the fact that mind and brain are not the same things. This is all done very philosophically in the writings. In order to understand the writings completely, I won't say understand at all, but completely, you have to understand these passages because Baha'u'llah and Abu Baha included them in such great numbers in the Baha'i writings, so they obviously have a purpose. So I incorporated this in school, I incorporated this, this in some of the Baha'i classes I taught, and all I can say is it worked. It, it worked extremely well. So, Ian, can you give me an example in, let's say, a, a Baha'i class that you taught the kids how to lay out a proof of God? So let's start with the, one of the ones that Abdul Baha uses. And, of course, Abdul Baha uses a lot of the borrows, as does Baha'u'llah, of the language of Aristotle, and if uh, people want to follow that out, the metaphysical language of Aristotle. This is not to say by any means that the Baha'i writings just endorse Aristotle lock, stock, and barrel. They don't. They use a particular set of Aristotelian terms and arguments and concepts. For example, the argument that you cannot have an infinite regress of causes. In other words, as Abdul Raha says, to have a causal chain where one thing bumps another, and he uses this word, he says, this is absurd. Why?
why doesn't it make any sense? Because if you have one thing bumping another, then you have two individual things, the bumper and the bumped, right? Right. And notice you can count these because all individual things, any list of individual things can be counted. And if it can be counted, it logically can't be infinite. And that's why Abdu'l-Bahá says there is one, one of the ways of seeing why Abdu'l-Bahá would say that it is absurd. Sooner or later, you're going to have to get to something that is the first bumper. But it can't be like the other material things, because otherwise it would need something to move or bump it. So it's got to be above nature or beyond nature. Now, I'm doing this in three minutes. In a class, it would take an hour. But it's a very straightforward proof of the existence of God. And it gets rid of this notion of an infinite regress. Why can't we have an infinite number of causes? You can't because causes are individual. And any collection of individual things, no matter how large, can always be counted. You can always have one more, but it can still be counted, n plus 1. Therefore, you sooner or later need to have a first cause or a first item, and that can't be like all the others, because it's got to be different, otherwise it would need a cause. And that's the answer to Richard Dawkins' little remark, well, who caused God, or who created God? Well, Dawkins' logical mistake is God is not an object like the others. God is not like a crow, or a car, or a brick, or an atom. God has certain attributes that make him completely different from anything else that exists. Why he is necessary, ultimately, we could spend you know, some time talking about, or more time talking about. But Dawkins makes what in logic is called a category mistake. He confuses the category of God, which is one kind of thing, with the category of things, which are a completely different category of things. He's being nailed to the wall in a first-year logic class at the university I went to. So it reminds me of scientists who profess themselves to be atheists and subscribe to the Big Bang as the start of creation. But I always ask myself, well, what created the mass that exploded in the Big Bang? Well, of course, exactly. And not only that, what created the laws that allowed the reactions that created the Big Bang to form in the first place? No matter how far, you, how much you try to explain the creation, the existence of the universe in strictly material terms, you always get to another question. What created the cause? What created the atoms or the neutrino or whatever particle you want to talk about? What created its capacity to be affected in this way or to do this or not to do this? You always wind up with more questions, and that leads to something... <laughs> I facetiously call Kluge's law, which is that nature can never explain itself. The material universe cannot be explained in strictly material terms. And I've written a whole bunch of book reviews on books about that. It's, it's on a Baha'i-run webpage called Common Ground, Religion and Philosophy. And I've written 
numerous book reviews for them, including books on by Dawkins. The problem is science does not lead to philosophical issues. Science is strictly science. Anybody who wants to go from the proving chemical reactions to the non-existence of God, they are what doing what scientists call going beyond the data. They are extrapolating beyond the data of science because you can't prove God scientifically in an experiment, but you can't disprove him either. And another area, too, is the theory of evolution. Whereas I think science proposes that the natural order of things is entropy. If things are really random, they're going to naturally go toward disorganization rather than toward organization. Yet evolution itself is showing that the opposite is occurring, that actually things are getting more organized rather than the principle of tending to be heading toward disorganization. Um, Absolutely. Not only in evolution, but in the universe around us. Astronomers are constantly discovering new levels of order. There's not just the galaxies, but there's now what they call the Great Wall, which is a collection of galaxies. The more they look out, the more order they find. It is very clear from the behavior of the evolution of life, and I'll say more about that in a moment, that entropy is not the only force at play. It very obviously is. Anybody who's ever looked at a teenager's bedroom will know that. There are other forces at play, too. The problem with life is, if the purpose of life is to survive and to reproduce successfully, then it is very difficult to explain why life has evolved beyond a single-cell animal, creature, simply because they're incredibly successful. There are way more of them than there are of us. There, there is an impetus there that perhaps cannot be duplicated in experiments, but that is nonetheless there and it is visible to those who want to see. And I know there are all of these theories of, you know, autopoiesis where order is created spontaneously and all that, and I, I don't deny any of that. But you look at some of these experiments, and then you say, wait a minute, this happens in your lab under your carefully controlled conditions. Are you sure this is what happened three billion years ago? If so, how would you know? You see, and already you're, that shows that very question. How would you know that question shows they are starting to go beyond science into something else. At that point, they are susceptible to all kinds of logical and philosophical criticism. I could spend hours here talking about evolution. <laughs> We're speaking with Ian Kluge, educator and philosopher. We'll return after a brief intermission. When we return... Ian will talk about his books on an interesting historical figure named Conrad Aiken. You're listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org. You can light the world for you 
Welcome back to A Baha'i Perspective. I'm playing an interview with Ian Kluge, educator and philosopher. We rejoin the interview where I ask Ian about his books on Conrad Aiken. I read on your bio on the Wilmette Institute that you uh, wrote two books about Conrad Aiken. I was wondering if you, and you mentioned him earlier in the interview, I'm just wondering what was the attraction to Conrad Aiken that caused you to write two books on him, and what are those two books? Well, one book is still out, available from Amazon, if I might put in a plug. It's called Conrad Aiken's Philosophy of Consciousness, and the other is out of print. It's from World University Press. Actually, there might be a few copies floating around somewhere, but I honestly don't know at this point. What attracted me to Conrad Aiken was precisely his desire to explore the, the intricacies of consciousness. He was a poet and a man with a very, very strange history. What got him going was the fact that he was seven years old. His father was a well-known society surgeon in Savannah, Georgia. His mother was a well-known society lady, and one day Conrad sat at the top of the stairs and watched Daddy slit Mother's throat with a scalpel and then blow the brains out. This got him wondering about consciousness and what goes on in the human mind. And he wrote these long poems which were explorations of certain philosophical themes about consciousness and identity. Part of what attracts you to him is because there's a marvelous underlying sense of humor there. It's not always a nice sense of humor. It's wicked. You know, with a guy sneaking home from cheating on his wife, wondering if he can explain this to her by saying, well, cheating on her is already three hours in the past. And since everything has changed in the universe, and I am changed, and you are changed, I'm really not the same man. Therefore, am I really responsible for this action? So he had a waggish way of exploring these issues, but he was incredibly well-versed in Hegel and Immanuel Kant, and these were, of course, major philosophers about consciousness, as well as Freud, and Freud paid him a very rare compliment. Freud knew of his poems and novels, I don't know how to this day, and offered him free analysis, and Freud was not known to do that very often. And Aiken refused. He obviously thought Aiken had something to contribute to philosophy as well as psychology. The intertwinement of good and evil in people, how our best instincts, our best attributes can have very dark roots in our psyches, how our worst attributes can sometimes be motivated by the desire to do good, you know, something like Romeo and Romeo and Juliet, where he screams, you know, I meant all for the best after having just created a disaster. The, the complexity of consciousness and the fact that he believes that consciousness evolved, and I think that's a Baha'i idea, too, of course, through the concept of progressive revelation, and this has attracted me to the Baha'i faith, the idea that different manifestations of God, like the Buddha, or Christ, or Mohammed, or Zoroaster, or there are others, of course, Baha'u'llah, come, arrive at a certain time in human historical development because the human race as a whole is ready to the, begin the next stage. It has to begin at some place on Earth. 
because this is the world. So it could be Israel or it could be India or it could be Saudi Arabia or who knows what other country. And the belief, too, that there were people who in all tribes around the world had these insights. They might not have been as great as Christ or Buddha or Baha'u'llah, but nonetheless, there was guidance there, too, appropriate to the time and place and psychological condition. And the evolution of consciousness, of course, fits into that very well. And you can see that quite simply today. We make a big deal out of giving foreign aid to the poor, to the starving other parts of the world, or more appropriately, you know, what are we going to do with these millions of poor Syrian refugees? Whereas in previous ages, and some of them not so long ago, that wouldn't have registered on anybody. That in, in the 19th century, in the 17th century or 18th, that simply wouldn't have registered on people. That was not part of their consciousness. But everybody's consciousness started to change after the Ethiopian starvation in the early 80s, when all of these pictures of these starving infants came on television, and lots of people started to carry an extra mental picture in their wallet. There was their family, but there was this Ethiopian child. And I think that those are the kind of down-to-earth, common-sense examples of the evolution of consciousness. And part of that is the technology that allowed exposure worldwide that didn't occur in the uh, 18th, 19th centuries. Of course. That's exactly why the Baha'i writings in the theory of progressive revelation, which is probably, in some ways, its flagship teaching, says that the spiritual, mental, and they're not the same, development are correlated with material development, too, which is exactly what you're saying. The means for that weren't possible back then. Now they are, and more and more people are realizing, you know, the human race is one. You know, we all bleed red, like I like to say. To be, not just to say that, but to be aware of it inwardly as a fact of life and as a part of the way you think and feel. Ian, you are a faculty member on the Wilmette Institute, and I'm wondering if you could explain to folks what the Wilmette Institute is and what's your role as a faculty member in that institute. Okay, the Wilmette Institute is designed to offer courses on the Baha'i faith and other religions from different points of view, some from purely theological points of view, some of the courses will deal with historical points of view, some are comparative, where you may have the Baha'i writings and Buddhism, or Christianity and Judaism, or Christianity and Islam, there are more courses on Islam because that's a very relevant issue in, in the world today. My particular courses deal with studying the Baha'i writings from a philosophical perspective, how to approach those passages in the writings that are very clearly of a philosophical nature. For example, what does Baha'u'llah mean when he says that the manifestation, or the prophet, if you like, 
is born of the substance of God. What are we doing with the word substance here, and how could such a thing even make sense? How are, are you saying that God is a material thing? Of course not. How do you understand Abdul Baha's explanation for the existence of the soul and the soul's immortality? And it's a very philosophically and logically coherent explanation. And what the faculty members do, of course, is they interact with the students, sometimes through phone connections. I've done that, and others have too. Otherwise, through email, and the various members of the course interact with each other. They raise questions, discuss things, and get actively engaged with this kind of knowledge. And that's what's so important, because for a lot of people, just to read it, it just becomes easier to understand, and you get more out of it when you talk with other people. None of us is an Aristotle or a Hegel who doesn't really need to talk to anybody <laughs> to, to have their understanding. I recommend it. I'm teaching a course on philosophy and the Baha'i writings uh, again this fall, later this fall. What I'm teaching about in that course is how to apply this philosophy to the Baha'i writings. But that same approach can be used for other religions like Islam. I have used that. I have an article coming out in an anthology about Islam, about Islam and reason and Immanuel Kant, which is philosophical, but brings out some interesting issues. So it's not just useful for the Baha'i writings, it's useful for anybody who has a philosophical interest in studying religion as philosophy. Every religion has an innate philosophy. The advantage of this philosophical approach is that it allows you to get deep enough to see the similarities that are at a very deep level. May I give an example of that? Please. If you say there is no God, the question, of course, is, or say Buddhism has no God, the question, of course, is which God are you dealing with? And, of course, in philosophy, we deal with what is called the God of the philosophers, namely something that is absolutely independent, that does not depend on anything else for its existence, that is beyond time, that is not affected by time, and that is not affected by place and it can't be forced or constrained to do anything outside itself, for something to force this philosophical God outside itself it would mean it was greater than God, and the, the God, by definition, can't have that, okay? So suddenly the whole statement that Buddhism doesn't believe in God takes on a whole different light, because you say, well, Buddhism is based on dependent origination and the process of dependent origination, which means that all existences depend on each other, which is really not that far different, and which is really not significantly different from, from Baha'u'llah's teaching. The point here is that the process of de dependent origination meets all of the attributes of the philosophical God independent, it doesn't depend on anything, it is timeless, it is spaceless, 
nothing can constrain it or make it do anything. Suddenly, the whole question of there may not be a personal God in Buddhism. That is one kind of God. But is there a philosophical God in Buddhism is now is an open question again. You'll see from that all religions, even this, uh, religions and stories we now call myths, have those things in common. They all believe in something that is not limited. In other words, it's not material. It's superhuman. And there are various ways of describing it. You can call them gods or, 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 or whatever. But they, too, don't have the attributes of ordinary physical and material things. They are portrayed like that, but they have these other attributes, which is why they look different. And suddenly Baha'u'llah's teachings of the essential unity of all religions starts to look like a, the profound teaching that it actually is. Now, you mentioned earlier that you had noticed similarities between Catholicism and the Baha'i faith, which sort of follows under the same line of thinking. Can you outline some of those similarities that you noticed? What the Catholic Church and the Baha'i faith share philosophically is that the philosophical arguments and language and framework used by the Baha'i writings follow a particular way of analyzing reality which began with Aristotle, okay? They don't have to end with Aristotle because Aristotle's philosophy has undergone many developments over the millennia. But they fit into that, and the Baha'i writings actually use that language. They talk about the four kinds of causes, for example. They talk about substance and essence and attribute and essential attribute and potential and actuality and things like that. And... Catholic philosophy no longer is officially the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, but in practice it is. Thomas Aquinas, of course, was an Aristotelian, and so there are some overlaps on moral issues and, of course, on issues of the way to approach the universe. For example, the most important thing about a human being is the soul. That is your essence. The Baha'i writings say that. Thomas Aquinas says that. Well, if your soul is the essence, the most important thing about you, then it logically follows that what happens to you, or not so much what happens to you, but your other not non-essential attributes, your look, your appearance, your hair color, your size, uh, whether you're fashionable or clumsy, these things be suddenly become literally terribly unimportant. And so you see a val hierarchy of values being established. And the other thing that is important uh, in terms of their similarities is that both are what are called moderate rationalists. Now, to explain what that term means, I'll have to back up a little bit. There are three basic positions when it comes to reason. There are the extreme rationalists who say that everything that reason tells you is true, and only what reason can tell you is true. If reason can't prove it, it's not true. Then there are, on the other end of the scale, are the irrationalists. 
they are today represented by the postmodernists and the skeptics. Everything is only an opinion, a viewpoint, a perspective. There is no such thing as truth. Reason is simply a cultural invention of the West, which, of course, is complete nonsense, but I may say a word about that later. There is no truth to know. Not only can we not know the truth, there is no truth to know. In the middle are moderate rationalists, and moderate rationalists say reason can tell us some things, but not all. So in the Baha'i writings, as well as for the Catholics, some things have to be known through intuition, through prayer. There are other ways of knowing. Now, I'm going to add something in a moment that's important to understand that. But there are other ways of knowing. We are not limited to only what reason can tell us. And that makes the Baha'is and the Catholics moderate rationalists. In other words, they can accommodate what for some feminists is, for example, women's ways of knowing. They can accommodate mystical experiences, telling you things that are true for yourself, perhaps, not for everybody else, but for yourself. And that is a very, very important difference, because out of that grow all sorts of consequences. Now, I just have to stick in a good word about reason here. Now, when we talk about logic, because this idea that logic is a Western invention imposed upon other cultures, which is demonstrably false. Now, when we're talking about logic here, we're talking about Aristotelian logic, which is based on the law of non-contradiction. In other words, you can't be a dog and not a dog at the same time. You either are a dog or you're not a dog, but not both at the same time. No matter what system of logic a culture may use, no matter if it denies the law of contradiction in its theory, as Nagarjuna, the great Buddhist logician, did, the fact is, even Nagarjuna obeyed Aristotelian logic. Nagarjuna knew he had either eaten lunch or not eaten lunch, but not both at the same time, in the same sense. If he couldn't tell the difference between having eaten lunch and not eaten lunch, he would have starved to death. He didn't. Therefore, he knew. Even a baby knows it's either been fed or not been fed. And if you've raised kids as we have, they'll let you know without any hesitation which of the two it is. 100,000 years ago, somebody knew Anybody would know that the fire is hot, there are flames, or there are no flames, and it's not a fire. It's not hot anymore. They knew the difference between hot and cold, in other words. The law of non-contradiction and the logic that grows out of it that is used both in Catholicism and in in Catholic philosophy and in Baha'i philosophy, in, in my view, is universal. There are no exceptions. There are people who, for various reasons, not all of them bad, deny that. But those rules are clear. When you cross the street, you know there either is a car coming at you, barreling at you at full speed, or there isn't. And you decide what you're going to do. 
there's a very famous Arab philosopher named Avicenna, who was a Persian, who grew so frustrated with the people in his time, and he's making a point. It sounds funny. It is funny, but it's he's making a point. Who denied the law of non-contradiction? He said, "People who deny the law of non-contradiction should have their shoes taken off them, and their feet should be beaten until they admit there is a difference between having their feet beaten and they're not having their feet beaten." And what he was saying, of course, is some people can't learn from reason; they have to learn from experience. And when we look at experience, we see everybody obeys the law of non-contradiction, which in the last analysis means everybody obeys the three basic laws of Aristotle's logic. People should explore the idea that philosophy is everybody's business, as Mortimer Adler said. Even if you're not interested in the Baha'i writings, and I suggest you should be, because they're philosophically quite brilliant, but I'm saying that from a perspective of someone who knows something about the history of philosophy and these ideas. So I would recommend that they be explored. Pick up a book by Mortimer Adler, Aristotle for Everybody. He's brilliant. Or any one of his other books. He is a genius in explaining ideas very simply and in a way that everybody can relate to. Usually I don't recommend books or writers because people have to find their own in a way. But I, I think Adler deserves a good look. I know the academic philosophers, I'm related to a couple, look down their nose at him, but don't let that put you off. He's worth the time. And then he will help you explore your religion or the Baha'i writings or your own life in clear terms so that philosophy doesn't become just another example of BS 101. Well, that's what philosophy comes down to for a lot of people, because they start these university courses, and I'm sure it's no different in the U.S. than it is in Canada, with modern philosophers using abstract language that these poor young students can't understand and don't know why the heck they're taking this stuff when they should be learning the basics and starting with the questions. And the questions should always come from the student. Back to my, everybody is a natural-born philosopher, especially young people. Then philosophy courses would be meaningful to students. Whether they know who Sam Kripke is, really quite beside the point. Not that I have anything against Sam Kripke. It's just his kind of things are not the kind of questions that people normally relate to. They're very technical questions. Well, Ian, I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Oh, you're most welcome. I hope I didn't bore anybody. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ian Kluge, educator and philosopher. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 
103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.